The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father God, you are the sovereign Lord of all the universe. There is no one else to whom we would lift up our prayers because there is no one else who can hear and who can answer. And Father, while we know that there is nowhere that we can go to escape your presence, and while we know that you can hear us whether we're crying from the top of a mountain or the depths of the sea, Father, there's something very precious about these moments when we gather together as a believing family, praying with common concern in this one place. Being united as as one heart and, and one people. Father, we confess that far too often prayer is an issue of last resort. We confess that there's there's times we'll pray right off the bat, of course. We'll throw up a perfunctory prayer, just a, a quick nod of our cap to you, but then we go about trying to solve our problems and seek solutions in our own might. So often, Father, it's not until you just keep your hand upon us, leaving us no way escape, that we finally, sincerely fall down on our knees and submit, seek you, consider what you're doing, in this life so father we want to be quicker studies than that we want to be like so many faithful saints that have gone before us to where prayer is is an extension of who we are it is like breathing or sleeping or eating the thought of not spending time significant time in communion with you is it feels like death We know that that's not natural to our flesh, that our flesh is lazy and selfish, doubtful. Perhaps at times it's pride that prevents us from coming to you first and foremost, but Father, we pray that you would break us of all that in whatever means is necessary, and I know that those are dangerous words. Whenever we bring a prayer before you, particularly a prayer of sanctification, and we attach to the end of that that prayer by whatever means necessary, we know that 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 might that might bring some real pain and suffering along the way. But Father, we want more than comfort, more than our more than even our lives. We want to look like Christ. We want to see you and know you. So again, I ask it, Father, by whatever means necessary, would you break us of our sin and our selfishness and draw us closer to you? Father, we thank you for all your good gifts. We thank you for gathering us together as a faith family. We thank you for a building that we get to gather in. We thank you for electricity, air conditioning, donuts and coffee, all those little gifts of grace 
undeserved goodness from your hand. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to receive these things, never taking them for granted, and to receive them as acts of worship. Something as simple as an encouraging note from a brother or a sister, or a warm hug from a brother or a sister, would we receive that as a gift from you? Father, we ask that you would continue to lead us as a church family and help us to have the boldness to go wherever it is that you are headed. We pray that you would keep discouragement and distraction away. We pray that you would cause us to be a single-minded people that as best we can discern your will, we will put our head down and we will charge hard. No matter the cost even if we find ourselves standing very much alone. Father, help us just to know your will and then to do it. We pray that you continue, Father, to meet our needs in ways that could only bring you glory, that no man could take credit. It's not a matter of a program or a scheme but that we would be a people who look up and know that every ounce of sustenance that we have, every provision that has been made, that it comes only from you. Father, we pray for healing for those in this church family who may be sick physically. We pray for relational healing where it is needed. We pray for strong and healthy Christ-centered marriages. We pray for obedient children. We pray for good stewardship of the resources that you've given us. We pray that in every area of our life, we represent you well. Father, as we open your word tonight, I pray that you would reveal yourself in it, that we would see more than just a story about a man and a fish but that ultimately we would see the story of the God of the universe who is ordering and moving and working all things for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we return this evening to our study of the minor prophet of Jonah, and um, those of you who were with us last week, or even those of you that, that weren't, you're, you're familiar with the story of Jonah and the giant fish, or Jonah and the whale, if you would rather, and um, you recall that the story begins with God calling a man to go on a mission. This man, he was a prophet of the Lord. We don't know whether it was before or after this point. It seems to me before that God had already spoken through this man. He had spoken a word of hope to the people of Israel, explaining to them that they would recapture some territory that had previously been lost. Now, perhaps it's because Jonah had been used to deliver such a positive message in the past, but when the Lord came to him on this day and told him that he was to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and he was to deliver them a message of warning because their sin had become so great that word of their sin had reached the very throne room of heaven and that he was to go in to warn them, to call them back from the precipice of destruction. That Because of this, Jonah would not go. He refused. In fact, Scripture tells us that he went in the opposite direction. While God caused this, called this man to go to the east, to Nineveh, instead he got in a boat and he headed west. He determined in his heart that he was going to go to Tarshish, and when he arrives at the port of Joppa, what would you know but that he founds a boat, finds a boat headed for Tarshish. You recall that he got out there on the ocean and it doesn't seem as though he was out there for very long at all when the scripture tells us that God hurled upon the sea a great wind, a mighty storm that God had sent upon this boat. And again, I tell you, it doesn't look as though it, they had gone, doesn't seem as though they had gone particularly far out onto the Mediterranean, but this storm, it was a great one. 
And all the sailors upon the ship, they began to cry out to their gods, wondering which one of their gods has been offended. Why has this storm come upon us? And the scripture says that the boat was breaking apart. They knew that they were at the very point of death when at some point they began to offload their cargo, the very purpose for their trip. All of a sudden, it wasn't so important any longer. So they began to lighten the, their, their boat by throwing their, throwing their cargo overboard. And at some point during this process, someone noticed that Jonah, he was down below and he was fast asleep. Now, we don't know whether this was some type of a supernatural sleep or perhaps, as my mind tells me, it was just exhaustion, a spiritual depression that comes from fighting and resisting God. Well, just as God had told that man to arise and go to Nineveh, the captain of the boat, he comes down to Jonah and he tells him, Arise, what are you doing, you sleeper? Call out to your God. We know that the men seeking to know who it was that was at fault for this, they began to cast lots, to roll dice, if you will, to figure out whose God is offended, who is the man who has sinned against God. And we examined last week that the Scripture tells us that while man might flip a coin, while man might draw straws, while man might roll the dice, ultimately it's God who determines the outcome. And the lot landed on Jonah. Jonah confessed to the people that he was a prophet. He was a man whom God had called to go on a mission, but he had resisted. He doesn't give us the details yet. We don't know yet why Jonah is running explicitly. He doesn't tell the man why he's running, but he tells them that he is a man who speaks for Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob the God of heaven and earth, not like the other gods, not a God who is just the God of the sun or the sea or the seagulls or the boats or the sailors or something like this. He was the God, I am. He tells these men that the only way they are going to be able to calm this sea, the only way that they're going to survive is that they will throw him overboard into the sea and that possibly would appease God's wrath, the anger that God has for him, and they would be spared. But instead, These men did what men so often do when they find a man under the hand of God's discipline. They sought to row back to shore. This is why I tell you it seems like they probably weren't that far into their trip at this point. They try to row back, but it's, it's it's no use. God just ramps up the pressure. The storm gets all the more worse. And I we talked about this last week, that God, as I prayed earlier, he just kept his hand upon them. He was just funneling these people to his appointed end to the purpose for which he had sent this storm. And so finally, the people, they reluctantly agree. These sailors, they reluctantly agree they're going to toss this man overboard. And so they cry out to God, God, don't let this innocent man's blood be on our hands. Now, Jonah wasn't innocent. We know that. The men knew that, but there had been no trial. But these men, they recognized that God was going to do what God was going to do, that God was both the judge and the executioner, and the only way any of them would be saved was to throw this man overboard. So that's what they did. I told you, I pictured them grabbing him by the feet, grabbing him by the hands, and one, two, and he goes. They throw this man overboard, and that is where we left off our story last week. So we return to the 17th verse in Jonah chapter 1. I remind you that this is not just a story. This is not just a tale. This is the Word of God. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet... I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you that I have vowed what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So, if we had been just following this along, and, and really the story of Jonah, it breaks up perfectly into these snapshots, doesn't it? It, it, it takes us from spot to spot, and there's portions of the narrative that just fit perfectly into each one of these sections. And so if we had just left off at verse 16 last night, 
excuse me, last Sunday night, it probably would have been appropriate to just zoom in on these sailors' faces. You recall that after throwing Jonah overboard, assuming that he had died, that's what they thought, that this was vengeance from God, that what God demanded was the life of this man. The wages of sin are death, and surely this man must die. The scripture tells us that then, at some point later, the men went off and they began offering sacrifices to Yahweh. They made vows for future sacrifices to Yahweh. And so perhaps the, the camera would have panned to them at that point and just stayed there. And as we come back this week, you can imagine a caption at the top of the screen that says, Meanwhile, while this was happening to those sailors, while God was working in the life of these sailors in this way, meanwhile, what about Jonah? Now, if you had never read this story before, you would assume that is the end of the story. God's going to have to raise up another missionary. He's going to have to raise up another prophet to go to Nineveh. Perhaps one of these sailors is going to have his heart turned, and he's going to go and finish the task, deliver the message that Jonah failed to deliver. And yet, that's not what we find. It says here that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Again, we're reminded who here is in control, that it is God who has orchestrated this entire drama. Scripture says that he appointed a fish. When we get to chapter 4, verse 6, we'll see that he appoints a plant. In the next verse, we'll see that he appoints a worm. In the next verse, we'll see that he appoints a scorching wind. We're reminded that there is nothing in all creation that is outside the control of the sovereign God of the universe, that he has appointed this fish. Now, I don't know what this means. I think it's probably excess speculation to try to figure out what kind of fish this is or to figure out, is this a special fish that God created just for this purpose? But it cannot be denied that God had set this fish apart that he had tasked him for this specific purpose. It wasn't as though God looked down from heaven, he saw in the sea, there looks like a hungry fish, that's my way of escape for Jonah. That God had been moving all of creation towards this moment for this purpose. And so again, if we're not familiar with this story, we would come to this place, we would see the fish and we'd say, oh, that's cheeky. Instead of letting the guy drown, God sends him to be eaten by a fish. What a vengeful God we have. I don't know if that's the worst way to die, getting eaten by a fish as opposed to just drowning in the water. They both seem pretty horrible to me. But we would have to assume that that's all we heard, that that was God's plan. God's plan was still for the death of this man, but it was going to be death by fish rather than death by drowning. But it goes on to say, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now that's a shock. It's one thing for a man to be eaten by a fish. I don't know how often something like that happens, but it does. But to say that he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, we immediately begin to realize that God had sent this fish not to destroy Jonah, but to shield him. That this fish, this fish was not the hand of destruction. This is not God's hand of destruction. It's his hand of salvation and hope. That the threat was in the water. But that God, what God was saving this man from, that threat came in the form of the most unlikely hero, a fish. Now again, we don't know what kind of fish this is. It was a great fish obviously it was a fish that had sufficient room for this man to be there I'm not imagining did Pinocchio was it Pinocchio what was it where he like Amanda Pinocchio but who is in the fish Pinocchio's in the fish I don't watch that stuff yeah but it is but it is fair for us to consider. I, I don't think that it, is, that it is outside of the bounds of studying this passage to consider what that moment must have been like. The place from which Jonah cried out. I don't think that we are going outside the bounds of the biblical record to, to know at very least it was dark. It was scary. And it was cramped. This was not the place that Jonah desired to be. I would imagine that when he first found himself inside the belly of the fish, he thought, I would have rather been dead. God, could you not have allowed me to be dead? Although, as we go through the story, we see perhaps this was God's answer to Jonah's very prayer. But this probably did not feel like much of an upgrade for Jonah. Who have you ever heard that goes into the belly of a great fish and it ever comes out a successful story? So, Three days and three nights. Now, I believe that we are to take this as the rest of the story of Jonah. We're to take this literally. 
Now, I don't know how Jonah would have known it was three days and three nights because it was dark. He couldn't see the sun. He couldn't see the moon. Didn't have a watch or something like that to, to follow this. Perhaps was it once he was vomited back up on the shore, someone told him, we haven't seen you since three days and three nights ago when we launched you into the ocean. We don't know. But I think that there's also an idiom here that this is the way that the Jewish people, they thought about death. Historians tell us that for the average Jewish person, they believed that it was three days and three nights for a man from the moment of death to reach the gates of Sheol, the place of the dead. And so it seems to me that while this is a true statement, it also serves to make clear that that's where this man was headed. It would be, I heard one commentary, I read one commentary this week that said that it's almost like the way we use the phrase six feet under. Are men really buried six feet under? I think so, right? I mean, it seems to be how deep they go. But it's not just about the six feet. If I say to you, you say, where is Jim? And I say, he's six feet under. You know what this means. Jim's dead. So he's using this phrase three days and three nights to make clear that Jonah isn't exaggerating when he says, I was at death's doorstep. I was at the point of death. There was no reason why I should be standing before you because three days and three nights I was in the belly of this fish. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying. Now, this can be a little bit confusing to us as we work through it because what Jonah is recording for us here is his prayer once he's already in the fish. You tracking? But what he recounts for us, a lot of it, some of the most terrifying aspects, the most anguish-filled and excited aspects of his prayer point backwards to his time in the water. Again, I remind you that the fish was his salvation. The water was death. We've got to keep that in mind that he's able to look backwards now and see, even in his prayer within this fish, see the way that God is making provision for him in the most unlikely of ways, in the ways that he wouldn't have signed up for. And he didn't ask, throw me into the water and perhaps a fish will come and consume me. But again, we're reminded that the anguish, the anxiety, the fear that he had happened when he was in the water. Also, we must recognize that this psalm that we read here, it isn't extraneous. It isn't inconsequential. Some people have argued that, that this prayer here that we read, this psalm that we read from Jonah, it was some addition that was brought in later, and it's really not necessary in, in order for us to understand the story. That The story is meant to just be a narrative. Tell us about Jonah. Tell us about the sailors. Tell us about the fish. Tell us about the worm. Tell us about the vine. Tell us about the Ninevites. We don't need to know anything about Jonah's prayer life in order for this story to make sense. But I would argue quite the contrary that it's only through this that much of this narrative can make any sense to us whatsoever. It's only through this that we can understand the irony of this God who responded to the prayer of mercy from Jonah would then, that this man would then turn his back and refuse mercy or be angry at God for giving mercy to the Ninevites. It's only when we hear his prayer that we can recognize where this change of heart from Jonah, his willingness to go, came from. It's only in this that we can understand this cry of gratitude and, and thanksgiving that came to the heart of Jonah. Is. So much of what we need to know about the story of Jonah is revealed to us in the prayers. And we're reminded you can learn much about a man. You can learn much about his life by listening to his prayers. If we could have an inside view, not everybody sits in front of a church and prays out loud. And there's plenty of prayers that I don't share with you people. There's plenty of prayers that I offer to God that are very much private between he and I alone. But if you could have an inside track to those prayers, if I kept a prayer journal, I've said this over the years that I probably should, and I just never do it. But if you could go back and look at a prayer journal and the ways in which I have cried out to God in my quiet moments, in my darkest moments, in my most anguish-filled moments, you would learn much about me and much about the way that I think about God. So we learn much from this prayer, and we learn, at very least, that he's continuing to call God his God. Now, obviously, Jonah never doubted the existence of God. He wasn't running from a phantom. You don't pack up and go to the other side of the globe because you believe that God's not real. Oftentimes, you'll notice that men who deny the existence of God, men who call themselves atheists or maybe even agnostic, they do an awful lot of running from a God that they don't think is real. They do an awful lot of explaining away a God who they tell you is a figment of your imagination. But Jonah knows. Jonah knows that God is there, that he is real, and Jonah never doubts that God has the power to save. If he did before, he certainly does it now. It's also interesting to me that Jonah didn't pray during the storm. 
When the storm came and all the other sailors were crying out to God, Jonah was fast asleep. It wasn't until he was in the water that Jonah offered up the prayer. Reminded, what did I pray down here? God, by whatever means necessary. And I meant what I said when I said those are dangerous, dangerous words. There may come a day when some of you are going to have to stand before me and say, buddy, we were there when you prayed it. And now that you find yourself in the depths of the ocean or in the belly of a whale, you must count this joy. You must count this a blessing from God that he has caused you to learn what real prayer really is, maybe for the first time in your life. And so I would also point out as way of introduction towards this prayer that as I said with regards to this fish, this, this, this whole account, this, this whole story, God's absolute sovereignty is just on complete control, complete display from, from start to finish. And yet this in no way inhibits Jonah's prayers. It drives them that it is God who has moved him to this very point, that he would pray in this very way, that God would respond in the way that he does, that he would get him to the Ninevites. That the absolute sovereignty of God and the prayers of man are in no way at cross purposes. They're in no way incompatible. So as we work through this prayer, you might be tempted to ask, well, who in the world prays like this? What man prays like this? I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Who prays like this? Well, a man who has read and lived and sung the Psalms. He prays like a man who has spent time listening to the Psalms, because you hear the same kind of language. I just picked two, Psalm 18, 6, Psalm 121, where this exact same kind of language, I called out to the Lord in my distress. I'm reminded that the way in which we pray is going to be very much influenced by the things that we read, by the people that we are surrounded with. Do you ever notice the way your children pray just like you? Probably as infant, or not as infants, uh, toddlers, is that what you call them, right? Like they learn sing-songy, rhymey prayers, perhaps. But then... As they grow older, they, they develop your, your cadence, your language. Abby prayed at the, um, at the high school football game, and Annie got to pray a, a couple of years ago, I guess, or a year ago. I think if they hadn't said the kids' names, you probably would have known, I know whose dad, who's, who's their dad is. Or, at very least, I know what church they came from. That there is, there is something about the, 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 what we are feeding ourselves, what we are feasting upon is going to influence the way we speak about and to God. But as I read this, I was thinking about, Haley, what's the song y'all sing? That it's not called Psalm 31. What's it called? I mean, it's not Psalm 34. What's it called? Taste and see. That one was running through my, through my head. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant. I, I, I want to sing it so bad. And their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. This is a common cry amongst believers. Those who know God know that he is a God who saves, and in their time of distress, they cry out, and God answers the prayers of those who are his. And Jonah knew how dire the situation was because as we read there he says that out of the belly of Sheol I cried out of the bowels of death now Sheol we can often come to this and think well that just means hell right that Jonah knew that he was going to hell but to the Jewish mind to the Hebrew mind Sheol was just a place where all the dead people went it was good people people are going to paradise people that were going to eternal torment all the dead people they went to a place called Sheol and what he's saying is I was almost dead again I was at death's doorstep and yet this man who ran from God, he's now crying out from death's doorstep. He's crying out to the God from whom he fleed. Now, I have to be honest with you. The doubts that I have, I, I, I very, 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 very seldomly in my life have ever doubted God's existence or God's goodness or God's provision, or God's faithfulness. Very, very, very rarely have I doubted God's desire for salvation for those who turn to him in repentant faith. I have had those moments of absolute insanity where I just thought this is all a farce. What am I doing? What am I giving my life to? But those are very, very rare. But I will tell you the doubts that most often creep in. 
I doubt that God can do for me good because of my sin. How often do I look up and think, God, I know that you're good and I know that I'm bad, and today I believe that my bad has outweighed your good. Now, I don't think in those black and white terms, right? But the reality is I live like that. I've really messed it up this time, and God, you can't do anything with me now. I've somehow excluded myself from your plans for my life. I've somehow thrown this whole thing off course. But this man, he cries out in the middle of his sin. He cries out for the presence of the God who he was once running from. So what, what happens here? Let's, let's play this thing out. God says go, he says no, and he runs from God. He runs from God, he runs from the people of God. He realizes I can't get away from God, and God all of a sudden is a terror to him, throwing a wind, casting a wind upon the sea. He gets thrown into the ocean. Now as he's sinking down into the ocean, he's crying out to the same God whose presence he tried to run from, the same God who showed up and nearly took his life. This is the fickleness of man, and yet he knows Just as he will say at the end of this book, he knows that God is a merciful God, a God who abounds in steadfast love. And so suddenly, he found salvation at the hand of the same God who he was once running from. Again, I say uncomfortable salvation. We're reminded that we don't get to pick God's path for us. When I say by whatever means necessary, I don't know what all that might mean. But I don't get to draw lines around what that can and cannot mean. One of my shows, I hope you don't judge me for this, one of my very favorite movies of all time is Steve Martin, The Jerk. Have you ever seen that movie? There's, there's some stuff that I wouldn't want my kids to watch necessarily, but I grew up in a house. We watched it. it was, I thought it was funny. And one of the things that was funny about that was when he was a carnival barker. You remember that? He's, he's guessing people's weight, and he says, step right up, step right up. You can win any of these prizes between the pencil, but not including the eraser, underneath the books, but above the teddy bear, and he's narrowing the prizes down to this little area right here. This is what we do with God. God, step right up, step right up. Save me by whatever means necessary. Oh, but don't touch that. God, you can save me by whatever means, as long as it is within this box that I have defined for you. For you cast me, verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Now, is Jonah confused? Who threw Jonah into the ocean? The sailors. Who told them to throw him into the ocean? He did. And yet he's saying here that it is God who has cast him into the deep. Who immediately comes to your mind when I say this? Another Old Testament guy whose name starts with a J. Joseph. What did Joseph say when his brothers came to him there in Egypt? They, they knew that they had sinned. Joseph does not excuse their sin, but Genesis 45, 4 says, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph and Jonah know that ultimately it was God's hand who cast him into the sea. Ultimately, it was God's hand that led him into Egypt, that ultimately God was sovereign even over the actions of these sailors and Joseph's brothers. This was God's plan for saving Jonah was the sending of this fish was throwing him into the sea. Job 36, 15 says, God delivers the afflicted by their affliction. You need to hear that again. It does not say God delivers the affliction from their affliction. It doesn't say God delivers the afflicted in spite of their affliction. It says God delivers the afflicted by their afflicted and opens their ear by adversity beloved the very thing that you most despise the very thing that you have spent your entire life fearing may well be God's means for your deliverance this may well be the means by which God opens your ears to hear him and teaches you what it means to really pray verse 4 then I said I am driven away from your sight yet I shall look upon your holy temple Now, as scary as drowning is, as scary as the idea that I might go down to the depths of the ocean and and, and lose my life there, that scary as the thought that I might be eaten by a giant fish and die there, this is the real terror, to be separated from God. 
Now, there's a time when Jonah wanted this, isn't there? There was a time when Jonah was seeking to run from the presence of God, but yet, at least now, he recognizes that this is the terror. Now, depending on what group you're standing in, depending on who your present company is, when you say a thing like this, that what you fear more than the loss of life, even loss of life at sea or in the belly of a whale, that what you fear more than anything else is being cast away, driven away from the presence of God, they'll call you insane. The idea that the greatest thing a man could lose in all the universe is communion with God, relationship with God, But when men speak like this or when men think like this or when men live like this, they make abundantly clear they have never known what it means to be in the blessed blessed presence of God. They have no concept what is at stake here. They have no concept what would be lost by something like this. Psalm 88, 4. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. So this isn't just a matter of being in the blessed presence or being cast away from the sight of God. This man, he reveals that what he believes, he believes that death means separation from God once and for all, that there's no coming back, that there's no worshiping, there's no being seen by or seeing God after death comes. Now practically speaking, we know God didn't cast Jonah away. Jonah ran. He fled. This is what he desired. And yet we see something in this by the fact that he says, then I said I am driven away. He does not say I was driven away because this is what Jonah felt in the moment. We're reminded that when we're in the middle of a time of suffering, even when God's hand of discipline is upon us, feel doesn't always equal real. What might feel like God's hand of destruction upon us may be his loving hand of discipline. What may feel like God casting you away from his presence may be you running and him moving pieces in order to bring you true deliverance. That we can't trust our hearts in the moments of pain. We must come to the word and we must allow the word of God to determine for us what is real. And even when our hearts and our eyes in the middle of this incredible pain come to the word, we know that our hearts won't rightly interpret the word, and so we need brothers and sisters around us to speak to us the truth. One of the devil's greatest tools is whenever we're in a time of suffering, whenever we're in a time of pain, we want to pull back into our own little caves. We want to pull away from the people of God for a couple of reasons. It's not always evil. It's not that I want to hide my sin. Sometimes it's just I don't want you to have to hear hear my, my griping and my crying. I don't want you to see me in my messy, snot-bubbling state. I don't want to pour my stuff onto your plate. But that's a time you most need somebody to hear what's going on in your life so they can give you sound biblical counsel. So I can look to you and I can say, what do do you tell people? I believe you? Is that what you say? That's true? I believe you? But I've also heard you say I believe you or, or, or I hear you. That's it. I hear you. That's what you I hear you, right? So you can look at me and you go, I hear you, or I believe you, or you're right on scale, whatever it is, right? Yes, yes. You feel like God is done with you. You feel like God has thrown you away. You feel like God has flung you out of his presence. I know that you feel this way, and I hear you. And I know the pain that it brings because I see it. Can I show you reality? Can I show you truth? That's what it means to be a biblical counselor. Spoiler alert, you're all biblical counselors. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the word of God, you have anybody that ever listens to you about anything, you're a biblical counselor. So it is your job to bring them back to reality, bring them back to what God's word actually says. So we can't trust the emotions in this moment, yet that's what he feels. And yet in the middle of this feeling of being cast away by God, there's still this tinge of hope. There's still this hope that he will again see the face of God. That's what he says. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Verse five, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed up, excuse me, whose bars closed upon me forever. So Jonah is again, he's just going back over the story again, right? He's going back over the story of this. I'm seeking down and down and down and deeper I go. Remember this, he goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. That there's, there's not an upward movement in Jonah's life yet. That it's always this downward motion. And again, he's talking in physical terms here. 
he seems to have reached the bottom now because you hear about the, the, I guess it's a seaweed or algae or something that's wrapping around him and he's reached the bottom of the ocean. He's reached the bottom of the mountains. He's, he's touched the bottom of the sea. He has to imagine never to return. How close to death had he come? You find yourself sinking down and down and down. And you know what this does? The, the pressure in your ears. You, you oftentimes, you, in the middle of this thing, you, you can't find which, which way is up. At this moment, I know just telling this story, Amanda is hyperventilating. She can't even watch a submarine movie without feeling like she's fixing to just black out. Any, any of y'all like this? But this experience that Jonah is having is he's going down and he's going down and he's going down. And how often do you hear people say, I almost died? My kids will say, yeah, we almost died. What happened? A guy ran a red light. Were you in the middle of the intersection? No, but we could have been. Then you didn't almost die. <laughs> That's not almost dying. This dude is at death's doorstep yet you brought up my life here's some upward movement for the first time you brought up my life from the pit O lord my god he cried out to the right one that could do something about it he knew that he was his god he knew that he was the merciful lord he cried out and god brought him up from the very pit of despair verse seven for when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. It seems as though he's to the point of almost blacking out, of almost giving out. People that know something about drowning, they say there's a point where it's really not as bad as you might imagine in your head because really it's just a point at which the lights just kind of fade out and you're just gone. I think this is in part what he's saying. I was fainting, I was going, my soul was fixing to leave me. And yet, he remembered the Lord. Psalm 69, verse one, save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. If someone's going to save him, it must be God. Now, the psalmist in Psalm 69 was not literally in water, and yet that's what it can feel like, right? Suffering can feel like this. This rising water or this sinking soul, and it just keeps getting worse. The water keeps getting deeper. You keep thinking, surely I'm going to touch bottom eventually, and you don't. And now you got seaweed around your head. And now you can't find which way is up any longer. And yet it is only to God that he would cry because it's only God could save him. And we're reminded that still he's right on schedule. Jonah is exactly where God desires for him to be. 2 Corinthians 1.8 For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9 Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God will put you in places where you feel like you despair of life itself, where you're at the very precipice of death and there's nothing left but to allow your spirit to fade, allow your eyes to close and to go off into Sheol. And God says, I got you right where I want you. I've brought you here to show you that you cannot rely on yourself but me. And my prayers came to you into your holy temple. Beloved, God's entertainment of sinful men's prayers there's no more tremendous gift, is there? That this man is a rebel. He is running from God. Again, I tell you, so often I doubt that God's mercy can triumph over my sin. That God has a greater capacity for grace than I do for evil. And yet, how many times do we come to the Scripture and we see stories just like this? Not just like this in the sense of a giant fish, but just like this. Sinful and evil men being brought to the end of themselves, that they would cry out for mercy, and then God jumping in and joyfully doing the thing that only he can do. But I think that my rebellion is too much, or I think my story is too special, or I think that maybe God has forgotten about his plan for me. So he hears the prayers of this man because he has brought him to this very place. And this, this picture of these prayers, they're, they're coming into God's holy temple. Not that God is, his presence can only be in that place, in that one place there in Jerusalem. It's this picture of our prayers going up like incense, or scripture talks about a pleasing aroma, that God delights in our prayers. It's a joy when his saints call out to him like this. Now we panic because we don't know where this thing is leading. 
We panic because we're not the sovereign God of the universe. And we panic because we don't trust that he's always working for our good. But he prays, verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So Jonah at this moment, he acknowledges the foolishness of idols. I don't know exactly where this is coming from. Perhaps it's Jonah's trust in himself. Perhaps he's thinking about the sailors. Or perhaps he's just pledging allegiance to God, to Yahweh. Now I'm not going to read it because time is getting short, but I've told you before how much I love that section of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah from verse, I mean from chapter 40 up to like 46 or 47, I think. I, I pulled a text. Just go and read it tonight. Isaiah 46, 5, where God is just, absolutely laying the thunder on these false gods who are not gods on these on these idols and he's he's saying things like look you you make an idol out of wood and with that same wood you go and you and you you make a fire and you eat some stuff and then this idol it can't go anywhere so you pick it up and you carry it where you want want it to go you set it up nice and pretty then you fall down before it and you pray to it and you expect it to do something this is madness i think about who was the Philistine guy? Was it Dagon, the one that kept falling over and they kept having to set him back up and then finally he fell over and his head fell off? Now, now we think this is crazy, right? We think this is crazy that you'd worship a stone idol, a wooden idol, a carved idol, but what idols have we created in our life that are absolutely worthless? And so finally, for the first time, Jonah sounds like a prophet. For the first time, he sounds like a man who's come to his senses. Idols are worthless. You're casting away any hope at the steadfast love of God when you give your heart to him. Idols can't help you. Verse 9, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed to pay. He's right back to where those sailors were. Remember, what did the sailors do? They offered a sacrifice, and they made a vow for more. This is his promise. Now, of course, what God wants more than sacrifice what does he say in Psalm 51, 16? For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. These are the words of David in repentance. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do you immediately rush to religious exercise whenever you find yourself at this moment? Do you immediately rush to trying to figure out how to get your life back together or how to please God? Or do you sit there in the dust and ashes with a broken and contrite heart and say, God, this is all I have to offer you. There's no service I can give that's going to make myself right with you. There's no, there's no gift that you need from my hands. What you desire in this moment, the thing that you will not turn away, is my wrecked heart, my broken and contrite spirit. And then he cries out, maybe the best words in all the Bible, salvation belongs to the Lord. What a hard-fought lesson for Jonah to learn. He didn't learn this in a classroom. He didn't learn it in a Bible study. He didn't learn it in a seminary. He didn't learn it watching YouTube videos. He learned it in the pit at the bottom of the ocean and then the belly of a whale. You see, people have all kinds of concepts about how God saves and how God should act and where God's sovereignty extends and where it stops. The problem is, most of us have never been punched in the mouth like this. We have never re reached a point of ultimate and absolute despair, yet God. This is the way that God would show him this story, that I am the God to whom salvation belongs. I think there's three aspects to this statement. Number one, it's his acknowledgement. I'm saved because Yahweh saved me. It's an acknowledgement of what Yahweh has done, what God has done to save him. Number two, it implies that God alone is the Savior. There is no other God. There is no false God. There is no idol. There is no one to whom salvation belongs but the Lord. But then thirdly, I believe, he's indicating that God will save who he wants and how he wants to. Remember, Jonah wouldn't have signed up for this form of salvation. Can't you give me something better? Like I would settle even for being Isaiah in the throne room and just being really terrified to see you. But to be in the belly of a whale, to be in the depths of the ocean, to have to be taken all the way to the point of death like this. But we don't get to pick the path. And so I think there's practically, there's three takeaways from this. There's three applications from this story. Sorry, my throat's going. Number one, if you find the story of Jonah resonating with you, you don't find yourself to be the hero of your own story. Stop running and cry out for mercy. 
Jonah didn't swim to the surface himself. He didn't find his way back to the shore. He didn't even make a bunch of promises and pledges. He found himself at the end of himself. He found himself broken and with nowhere to go, and he cried out to the God of the universe for, for mercy. Dear friends, I'm telling you, there is no sin, there is no rebellion, there is no running that you have carried out that can out overcome the grace and the mercy of God. He will reach you right where he is. He doesn't, right where you are, he doesn't need you to take steps back towards him. He doesn't need you to clean up the mess. He doesn't need you to do anything to please him. He wants your broken and contrite heart and a cry of mercy. Number two. Those of you who have received mercy like this, those of you who have been saved from the pit of despair like this, remember this mercy and be quick to extend it to others. We're going to see how short-lived this message is. He's a, he's a half-performed prophet. He's not going to carry out this thing very well. We must be a people, those people who have received mercy from God, who have received compassion from God in the middle of our sorrows, in the middle of our sin, we must be quick to extend it to others, quick to point other people towards it. Again, we're not the sailors trying to row back to shore while God's hand of discipline is upon them. We call them to the only thing that can save them. Repent. Cry out to God and be saved. And then we must delight in the salvation of others. Scripture says that heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Are there any sinners in this world that you would not rejoice with heaven if they were to repent? Are there any sinners in this world that you would not find yourself willing to do whatever God would call you to do if you knew that he would use that to bring about their salvation? And then thirdly, for those of you that know people that are running hard away from God, those of you that have brothers and sisters and spouses and children, that you look at them and you just see it all over them. They're running away from God as quickly as their little legs will carry them. You can have hope in the fact that there is nowhere that they can run that God cannot reach them. There is no depth of darkness. There is no bottom of the ocean floor. There is nowhere that they can run that God in his sovereignty cannot reach into their chest, give them a new heart, and bring salvation to them. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the story of Jonah. We thank you that we can learn from his lessons, learn from his mistakes, learn from his sin and rebellion. Father, we pray that we would be quick studies in our own sin, quick studies in our own rebellion, that we would not run from you, we would not resist you, that we would submit, that those of us who have run or who are in the middle of an act, a season of rebellion or, or resistance, that we would wave the white flag of surrender, we would bow in reverence and we would cry out for mercy. Father, for those of us who have people in our lives, and I, I can't imagine there's a one of us who doesn't, for those of us who have people we love that are so clearly running from God, Father, I pray that you would give us a boldness to speak your truth, but more than this, that we would have a heart of devoted prayer crying out to you on their behalf that you would reach them and that you would save them. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.